Dave White is an artist known for his paintings of the natural world, using an approach that is at the same time figurative and abstract. His work captures the movement, energy and personality of his muses from all across the animal kingdom. Covering a range of topics, we get to find out about his childhood, his passion for the natural world and his love for old arcade games. This, as well as getting to know more about his art and the feeling behind it. This podcast was recorded just prior to Dave's latest exhibition, Freedom, at the Enter Gallery. I started experimenting with painting. There's so many avenues of art. We're surrounded by images. Just being lost in this sea of possibility. Announcing that I was going to be an artist. It brings the work I do alive even more. They could be part of this work as well. Everyone's got their own personal connection to something. Hello and welcome to Art Related Noise, the podcast of the Enter Gallery in Brighton. I'm Stuart Holdsworth from Inspiring City and I am with Dave White. How Dave, how are you doing? I'm very good, apart from melting. How are you doing? I'll tell you what, it is a bit, it is a bit hot, isn't it? I am, I, it's, it's not weather for me. I don't know what it's like for you, but this sort of weather is just, is, is absolutely crazy for me. It is crazy. I mean, wearing a full respirator and painting, it's a bit sticky, to say the least. But anyway, we'll grumble in the winter and we'll grumble in the summer. That's how it goes. So. We, w- we would not be British if no. we did not start a conversation and grumble about the weather, no matter what it is. No. It's, it's our birthright, I'm afraid. <laughs> you, um, you know, we, we're, we're talking. It's great to have you on, on, the, on the podcast, by the way, because you've been, you know, you've been with Enter Gallery for you know, so long now. And you know, every single time I go in there, I can see your, you know, your fantastic animals or birds or whatever it is that you're doing. It's really sort of, you know, the eye-catching stuff that you do. And what got you? Uh, what, where did the relationship start with Enter? What, what got you uh, wow. going with those guys? So basically, it was. I mean, our history goes way, way back. I think it was actually. 2007 when we first started working together and prior to that I'd been doing a whole series of works based on sneakers Um, and then the very first edition that I self-published was of a 38 Saturday night special which is a you know a 70s handgun and that was the first silkscreen we released and that was kind of our little kind of journey really and then since then you know working with with Enter previous obviously our republic it's been you know we're hand in hand and you know i love working with them and, and it's always been you know a real treat to kind of show with them really seems because you've been with them so so long it's like you've you've sort of you've grown with each other i'm getting the, yeah. the impression of so enter have really sort of grown into the you know the great gallery that they are and you as an artist as well working with a gallery like that has just you just managed to grow yourself it's kind of interesting because I'll distinctly remember a conversation I had with Lawrence, who's obviously the owner of Enter Gallery, um, and we were in the London Art Fair. And prior to this, like like when I was doing my degree at John Moore's a long time ago, I kind of was doing animals, um, and I ended up having quite a lot of early success with them. And then I moved away, and I kind of said, did the sneakers, and I did some like kind of you know other things as well. And I said to Lawrence at the London Art Fair. I'm going to start doing these tigers and hummingbirds. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And then here we are. And it's kind of, it's been a really, really interesting journey with them. And, and as I say, you know, kind of all the way through the kind of last decade, you know, they've always exhibited basically all the animals that I've done. And there's a really lovely history there. And, and I kind of, we should do a book or something really. But, you know, it's all, all to be had. 
I think that'd be a, that'd be a good book actually. If you look at look at the journey journey of the gallery yeah, yeah. and all the artists that have been through it. I mean, part of the reason we talk you've got you've got a show there. Yeah. Dependent on when anyone listens to this or watch it watches it, it's on the thirtieth of July, twenty twenty one. Tell me about the show and uh, and what it's about. Okay, so I'm really excited, like as I say, to be doing a kind of an exhibition with them, like kind of uh, the last sign and kind of thing where I was in person. Uh, and uh, um, we, it was one of the stags we released way back. I think it must be like 20, 2017 or something. So it's a real pleasure to, to go back down. And obviously with everything everybody's been through in the past 18 months, it's really lovely timing. And the collection is entitled Freedom. Previous to, to what I've been doing, I released a couple of images of doves. One was called Hope and one was called Love. And I guess what these are about for me is literally about how we all feel, how we all feel about each other and how this horrible thing we've all been through has really crushed our kind of souls and our ways of living and everything we take for granted. And I've explored hummingbirds for the past decades. There's something that I adore. There's something that I see all the time when I go visiting places. And I just wanted to create something. I mean, I was busy painting dinosaurs at the time. And I just, flash of inspiration just came because this is the first piece that I've ever released where there's like way more than one image because usually it's one image isolated. So anyway, this, this piece is called Freedom and there's five hummingbirds on this one thing. And I guess I just wanted to make something that was beautiful and bright and happy and there's nothing more alive and nothing more vibrant than when you see a hummingbird. And I guess it's the optimism, hopefully, that we're all starting to feel as restrictions are kind of lifting in a way. So that's what it's all about, really. So I just wanted to make something that really spoke to people and, and how they feel. So, so with, with the hummingbirds, the piece is—is is it a selection of pieces, or is it—or is it one piece that you're, you're you're doing as a print release? How what what are people going to going to see when they go in there? So when they walk in, I mean, I would class it as like a pop up exhibition. So I've made five original watercolors um, of five separate hummingbirds, and they're obviously going to be for sale um, on the evening. Then there is a couple of editions that we're releasing. So what we always tend to do is we always make a standard size edition, edition of 50. And then we always make something like super, super beautiful and very bespoke. So that is an XL version of the freedom piece and each hummingbird's hand finished with 24 karat gold leaf. And there's 30 of those alongside that we're releasing one of the hummingbirds by himself on a standard edition of 50 and again on an XL, which is hand finished with 24 karat gold leaf. I mean, I've used, I use precious metals and I use things like diamond dust in my work to basically emphasize the beauty and the scarcity. And that just kind of underlines all the animal works that I've ever made really. What got you interested in painting animals and, and birds in the first place? What, what was, what led you to that? I love them. End of, I mean, you know, I can distinctly remember my very, very first visit to a, a zoo, which is my local zoo called Chester Zoo when I was in Liverpool. Um, and I've got a photographic memory. So it's kind of, you know, when you are that overwhelmed by animals, it just has never lost me, to be honest with you. I absolutely, whether it's where I live here, I get to see deer and I see foxes and owls and bats and everything every day. And I've never, ever once 
does it not stop me in my tracks? And, you know, you go to a zoo or wildlife park or safari or you see something in the wild and it's so easy to forget these things are part of our world. We're all iPhone 12s and kind of the world is so fast and you forget that we share this place with these things. And my work, I've said it many times, isn't just paintings of pretty animals. It's all about raising awareness to how we're just absolutely destroying them and it breaks my heart. And any awareness I get through my work, either through the work itself or working with charities, is something that is absolutely at the forefront. So in answer to your question, I just love them. You know, funny you should say about Chester Zoo, because that, if, if anyone grew up at a certain time in the north of England, you were probably going to have a, a school trip to Chester Zoo. And that, you'd look forward to that trip. Totally. Is, that, is that what you did? Was it, a, was it a school trip or was it just like... No, I mean, it's my mum and dad. I mean, you know, again, I went to a place called Nosley Safari Park. Yeah, that's great as well. Amazing stories. I mean, I'll have to just run you this, whether it makes the cut or it doesn't. When I was studying at John Moore's, you're a student, I was spending all my money on materials and stuff. So long before the internet, and I wrote to them and said, listen, is there any chance I can get a pass free to come in as a student? Because I used to go there and draw all the time. So anyway, I, they wrote back to me and said, yeah, there's a pass, come on, you want. And I basically used to go every Sunday morning at nine in the morning and the punters wouldn't go in until 11. So I'd have two hours in the whole park to just draw. I was drawing this hyacinth macaw, this beautiful blue and yellow macaw. And this lady came behind me, so obviously the, the, the place had opened. And she goes with a little baby. She goes, hello, Mr. Parrot. And this parrot goes, you come here often. I looked at her and she looked at me and we were just blown away. And this bird had a really distinctive mark on its shoulder. Every time I would go up to this thing, and I would just talk to it and just look at me to say, nah, not doing that again. <laughs> that's amazing that's a relationship I suppose you got to know when you go into some place like that I suppose you get to know the different animals don't you get to know the you know the characters of them if you're going you know time and time and time again I mean did, would, would you go back to the same animal and keep drawing them would you spend time with them would, in that way or it would it would depend what I was doing but exactly like you're saying so I mean you know obviously a lion looks like a lion and a penguin looks like a penguin but as you say when you get to know them and you kind of it's almost like, you know, bird spotting or train spotting or something, you know, by the distinctive characteristics, whether it's the movement or the plumage or the scars or whatever it is. And I would, you know, I used to go there, like I say, all the time and I would just fill endless sketchbooks and stuff. And it was amazing. And I, and I funnily enough, I went up um, not so long ago for my goddaughters kind of just, you know, to go and, and visit her. And we went up to Chester Zoo and this amazing lion was there. I just did a, I did a piece on him. So it was like going back in time for me. Like, it was amazing. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I was, I was, I was researching a piece. Uh, I, I saw David Wynn, don't you, if, if I've ever come across him, but he, was, he does sort of sculptural pieces. And he's got a okay. piece of Crystal Palace. It's called Gorilla. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah. During yeah, the yeah. 50s. And he went to London Zoo, and he just goes back and back and back. And his process was just studying that gorilla. So that the final piece was just a amalgamation of of that study over yeah, yeah. over years studying just yeah. to capture the character catching the essence of that of that fine animal well that's the crux of what i do to be perfectly honest mm. with you i mean there's not far from where we live is a place called monkey world 
and I did a whole series on like um, chimpanzees a couple of years ago and silverbacks. I went to Bristol Zoo and I got access to go behind the scenes. There's an amazing silverback there called Jock, like proper old boys, massive. And I got to go, obviously not in the cage with him, but I got to go behind the glass and see all behind the scenes. And I spent three hours with him. And that intimacy and that contact that you have in the eyes and all of the characteristics that you see, that's why I always revisit specific things. So like great white sharks, gorillas, hummingbirds, tigers, there's always, I call them icons in a way. And it's like, they're things that I always revisit because when I see them, I'll see something I haven't seen before. And that's what makes me snap and want to, depicts an image so yeah it's really wonderful thing to do so go back to the hummingbirds then so tell me more about the hummingbirds what what first inspired you about the hummingbirds and why hummingbirds for this particular piece i mean hummingbirds in general i mean i did a whole series uh, way back when i uh, based on americana so it was like i was really interested in kind of like Native American Indians and kind of like their battle dress and kind of all of that. And then I was looking into spirit guides. And when you do a little bit more research into that, the hummingbird is one of the most powerful spirit guides that there is. It's just, that's the thing. And it's like something so tiny with so much presence and so much power. And then when you see them in the wild or you see them in a zoo and you get them fluttering around your head, and the noise they make and they feed off it and the color, it's like, it's a complete overwhelm of the senses. It's like, you just can't help but be absolutely like, literally overwhelmed by them. And for me, it's just capturing, and especially with these new ones I'm doing now, like, as I say, the, you know, the collection's called Freedom. I mean, when you see the wings move so quickly, I think it's something like 660 beats per minute, the wings move. Um, and when you actually, like I say, see them in the flesh, it doesn't look like they're moving. It's just, they're just there, like zipping about. So what this collection is about, as I say, is about capturing that incredible freedom that they have. Um, and the wings, especially on this series, were what I was focusing on. I mean, movement has always been a part of my work, um, you know, to kind of capture the character, the dynamism, you know, whatever it is that I see. They have to look alive. They have to look animated. And that's something that is very different when you do a tiger or you do a T-Rex or you do a great white shark and you do a hummingbird. It's like they're all very, very different how you have to depict them, for me anyway, for, to get that character around. So these are just literally, I'm trying to just get that where you see one and it just is there and it's just about to zip off. And then but again... I was going to ask you about that you know, in terms of the movement, because when I see your your pieces, that's what I take away from them. You know, I yeah. can I, I can sort of sense what you're you, you know you're trying to do. You know, these it's a living image really that's that's, yeah. that's on screen on a print or on canvas, what have you. But just because of the way that I think you, you you paint, it's like a sort of mixture between you know figurative and an abstract to some to some degree. There's there's energy going around it. Just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about your process? How do you get that effect? I mean, basically, like, the processes are very, you know, that's like asking how Michael Jordan throws a ball. It's, he just does it, and I just do yeah. it. And if I'm honest with you, the first and foremost thing I would say is you never stop learning. You never stop challenging yourself. I don't anyway. And that's the beauty of it for me. But I guess you've kind of touched on it. If my work was hyper-real, 
it wouldn't look like my work. If my work was way too abstract, it wouldn't look like my work. So it's almost like I always say, it's like walking a tightrope. It's like you go one way or the other, you've had it. So it's like, it's that moment of trying to get that absolute perfect 50-50 balance of spontaneity and realism. And I know that's a very big contradiction in terms, but that's what it's about. And I listen... I listen to like, you know, jungle when I work. I don't think about painting when I'm painting at all. The only, and I've said it before, the only time I think about painting is when my brain says to me, oh, maybe you should put a bit of purple there or put a line there. As soon as my brain starts playing that game, I'm done and I'll just put the canvas or the watercolor off the easel and then I'm done and I don't look at it again. So it's like, it's very much a meditative state for me. Um, I know what I'm doing and I know what I want to do, but I don't think about it when I'm doing it, if that makes like any going, sense. You're going into a flow. Totally. Yeah. Totally. It's like, it's, it's that perfect part when your brain and your hands and your eye are completely coordinated and you're not, you're just in the present with what you're doing and you're not really, or I'm not really like, as I say, sitting back and, and then, you know, looking at it and going, oh, I'll put a bit there. I'll put, that's not how I work. Once I start work, there's a very long process when I do like works on canvas or whatever, you know, I'll do all my drawings. I'll go to all these places, take lots of photographs, lots of drawings. Then I'll do like a very spontaneous, but very accurate underpainting. And then that's built up and built up and built up. But when it comes to the day when I'm going to actually go in for it, when I'm going to paint it, I, I'll spend like, three hours mixing all my colors. They're all in kind of mixing bowls and then I'm off and I don't kind of, well, I say that I used, to, I used to not stop until it was finished, but the last couple of years, because the works have been getting bigger in scale, it's disciplined me in the sense that I have to do it over a few, few days. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, so it's, it, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of this stuff going on. So the preparation being really, really important, not in terms of, you know, you talked about the sketching, but three hours on the colors as well, just, do you find that that's a meditative state as well? And you just, you focus on that, on the, on the colors, just getting the colors right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously like with a lot of the things that I do, I mean, these things aren't straight out the tube colors. Yeah. I mean, you know, to get very specific tones and, and, and kind of like hues of, of, of specific animals, you know, I have to spend that time mixing, but my point is where you touched on it about being in a flow, I don't want to stop mixing colors when I'm painting. Once I'm in that relationship with that canvas, then I'm kind of in that zone. So, but I do find it very meditative mixing it um, in my respirator with 120 degrees. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you, meant, you touched on the respirator before. I mean, you know, the, the, you use a lot of different, I think, I think you know, oils, I think you use in your work, yeah. watercolors, you use lots sort of different elements within your work. So that, the fumes must, must get quite, um, there must be quite a lot of fumes basically. There's very much a lot of fumes. I mean, I've got extraction and stuff like that. I use some very nasty stuff. Mm. And if I didn't use extraction, um, I wouldn't be here. So at the end of the day, you've got to safety first, have to wear gloves. I mean, it's all nasty, nasty stuff. But like I say, I mean, you know, watercolour and, uh, water, and oil are the absolute polar opposite of materials. And, you know, when I did my degree... You know, I was in there at eight in the morning and I didn't leave till nine at night. And that's who I am as a person. I'm incredibly disciplined and I've never, ever lost that. So it's like the last couple of years, I've been really pushing the boundaries of what I do. So I make oil paint move like watercolor. 
um, make watercolor and places move like oils. And it's like a real juxtaposition of media. And I guess, like I say, that just comes with experience and you never ever stop learning. And that's, that's the, the, the love of what I, I do really. I suppose that's, that's led you to where you are now, because I think that that, that sort of constant learning approach is really, yeah. you know, supported you throughout your career. But now when you look back and you can see, actually, in order to create the work that I want to create, these things have to be in place so that I can then get in flow is, is you, you know, that, that's, that's the result of, of years of doing it, I suppose, just knowing that in order to get the best result for me, I need to be in there and no distractions. It just has to happen. And it has to happen whilst I'm listening to my music and I'm just doing my thing. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, I don't get disturbed when I'm working and, you know, the phone's off, everything's off. And it's kind of like, that's how it is. I mean, you know, I don't have a clock in here. I just I just do what I do. And, and I'm my own worst critic. I mean, at the end of the day, I very, very rarely lose one. Um Sometimes it does happen, you know, I go past the post, something's a bit overworked, my intention isn't how I wanted it. And I'm the kind of person um, that literally, it would be utterly pointless for me to just take it, you know, go back to my home, play some video games, get on with my day. It's like all, being a painter is a crazy thing because you are completely obsessive with what you do. And it's a quite intense thing to be one any painter or any artist will know exactly what I'm talking about but to kind of clarify to people who aren't it's like if you don't get what you want it's only down to you so if I lose one I'll put another piece of paper up I'll put another canvas up and I won't leave until I've got what I want and that's something I had when I was 16 and that's something I have now being 50 so whatever I love what I do Oh, yeah, it sounds it comes across that you absolutely energy is is clear you love what you're doing i want to ask you and go a little bit uh, back in time because you touched on it earlier but you talked about your, the sneaker the sneaker art yeah. how, you know how did that all come come about because we're talking like back in the early 2000s now aren't you started yeah, yeah yeah so i mean i've always been a massive like sneaker collector trainer collector whatever you want to say even like in from the 80s being in high school there was a movement called football casuals which some people say started in liverpool some people from manchester will say it started there i'm not starting it but we started it but anyway it was all about even back then having you know the best kicks you could have going to away games and coming back from germany or somewhere with something nobody else would have so even though sneaker culture now is just to a penny and it's like a global phenomenon. Um, back then it kind of wasn't. So I've always been interested in sneakers, I've always loved them. And I was sitting in the studio one day and I was looking at the neon green Air Max 95s, which I had, and I was just like having a sandwich and I was like, Do you know what? They are absolutely incredible. The way they've been designed, the way they echo the structure of the bones of a foot. I just thought, Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm going to immortalise I'm going to paint one. I'm just going to paint one. And then one turned into 10, and then 10 turned into 20. Then one got on the cover of Creative Review, which was crazy. And then Nike got in touch, and it was like I came back to an answer phone message. I thought it was my mate winding me up, and he's like, hello, this is so-and-so from Nike. We want to work with you on a project. And I'm like, I rang my mate up going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very funny. And it was legit. Like, anyway, so to cut a very long story short I started working with them I did an in-house t-shirt that went global and then the day came when I actually got a phone call to work on my own Air Jordan which is just crazy crazy 
And it was like, do you want to do it? And I'm like, do you want to do it? It's like, and then that, they sent me the template. We decided on doing an Air Jordan 1. They sent me the template and it was like, okay. And then the rest is kind of history. I mean, it's, it's like I'm talking to you and I'm looking at a cabinet with them in there. And every day I come in and make a cup of tea. I'm like, did that happen? It's like, really? But the interesting thing, I mean, I've had a great relationship with them. And over the past kind of decade, you know, we've worked on a number of projects. And the best projects I've done, hands down, not having a shoe with your name on it that you've designed has been the philanthropy. Like the stuff I did, a project with a group of school children from Inglewood High School. And these children were so poor, so poor, they had to share their internet connection with the teacher to work on the project. And I went and worked with them. They designed it, I didn't touch it, I said that implicitly. And they worked on this mural and Jordan went in and basically like, did a whole new basketball court for these kids. And these kids were just, they put a jamboree on, which is something you see in movies. And it was one of the most incredible days of my life. The energy these children had in a school, in such a, a place of poverty, where it's so difficult to, to get out of that. And these children were just the best. So the projects I've worked with Nike have been the best ones, have been those projects. Um, because, because they link in with, with a social aim? Basically, just it's got nothing to do with, like, as I say, it's lovely to have a shoe with your name on it that you've designed, but to change somebody's life. Like the last philanthropy project I did was a project called Journey to Greatness, and it was working with the cream of the crop from all different disciplines, from London um London colleges, so it was like the best graphic designers, the best fashion designers, and it was all about creating a product, working with like amazing athletes. I got to kind of meet them all, like Alison Felix and all of these top tier athletes. And some of these kids were out of university. They were flipping like three jobs, working in cafes, you know, all these kind of things. Some of them were gonna give up, right? Mm -hmm. And they worked on this project and they, there's two of them in particular, who basically were going to give up and now they've got the, the most amazing design agency in London. And they all got to design a t-shirt that went into Nike town in London and you could see it in their eyes. And I mentioned it for six months and it was the best thing I've ever done with Nike. It was just to see people get hope and reward and to actually think, you know, we can do this and believe in ourselves. It was the best much better than having a shoe with my name written on it, hands down. Sound, you know, it sounds amazing. It's just what, you, you know, the sense that you can, just by giving something back, by, I, mean, I think you used the word mentorship Yeah. earlier. I mean, you know, you, you being able to pass on your skills, your experience to people coming up, particularly with the, when they've got real talent like that and they think, actually, you Absolutely. know, if, if I just give you a little bit, that, that might, might just go a long, long way because you've got the talent, just need a little bit of support. Very difficult when you're in, in you know, deepest, darkest London and there's rent to pay yeah. and it's like, how am I going to keep designing? How am I going to keep painting? And it's like some people very easily, because you have to survive, fall into it. I mean, I'm my own, as an example, I mean, when I came out of university, I taught for a while and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I'd, I've got relationships with people who still, who are my students, who still DM me on Instagram now. Like, you know, you... We had such a great time with it. I love it. And it got to a day, and the day was when we used to subscribe the, the art 
Art College used to subscribe to certain magazines and, and it's exactly what I said before. Creative Review Magazine came down with the librarian and she put it on my desk. She didn't know. And my, my, Air, Jordan, uh, my Air Max 95 paint was on the cover. And this one kid said to me, he goes, sir. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, can I just ask you something? I said, fire away. He goes, what are you doing teaching us? And it was crazy. And it was like, it was a real penny drop moment for me. And I just went, you know what? Let's go. And, and I did. It's amazing. It's amazing. So it sounds like that gives you energy. You've got a lot of things that are giving you energy there. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. it's, nice, it's nice to hear about that philanthropy work because I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot in that. And, um, you know, just being able to just give back and, well, I mean, that's, a, that's an ongoing thing. I mean, I get like many, many like primary schools, like in secondary schools, who email me teachers who just say, listen, you know, we're studying your work. I mean, that blows my mind. Come on. Like, How what? great is that? How great is I mean, that? Hang on. I mean, it's the same as the sneakers in the case. Someone yeah, yeah. says, we're studying you for our, our, I'm like, come on. But anyway, to cut a long story short, any teachers that reach out to me as much as I can do it, you know, I work with them, I do Zooms with them all, and it's like, it's amazing. And I absolutely love it. Anything I can do to give back, to inspire people, it's a no-brainer. Same with charity work, Tusk, WWF, anything like that. I mean, you know, it's a no-brainer for me, hands down. Yeah, because you do a lot with the, because one thing I haven't even touched on is the WWF work. Yeah, I mean, I'm working at the moment on a, on a really, really amazing project um, to do with Tigers. It's going to happen uh, later this year. Um, and it's going to, you know, the actual painting itself is going to get auctions off in like the Singapore Art Museum. So it's a massive, it's a really prestigious thing. And I'm very honoured and very blessed to do it. But yeah, like any charity work that I can do, any animal work, I mean, it's just a no brainer. It's like, you know, all I'm trying to do with my work is raise awareness of the plight of the of, of the wildlife and the states in, in in the natural world. So yeah, absolutely. And uh, and in, in that, when you choose your the, the the I mean now in terms of where you are currently, do you do you choose might you choose animals specifically just so that you can make a point about saying something about them and maybe that that acts as an awareness raise. So maybe there might be uh, in danger of extinction or. Or something like that. Absolutely. I mean, the last the last decade. I mean, you know, shows from a show I did called Albion, which was based on wildlife in England, and it's all very well. We can sit there and click up critically endangered animals, and we know tigers and mm. elephants, and you know, all of those things. Rhinos, for instance, we know there's a top tier of what is incredibly endangered. When you look deeper, and then you start getting into sea lions and penguins and chimpanzees and you're thinking well hang on a minute and then you look over here and you look at hedgehogs and you look at owls and someone says well listen these things have got less than 20 years over here i mean that blows my mind and it's oh, that's, like that's terrifying it's terrifying all of my work and like as i say in answer to your question all of the, the shows that i produce are based on something to raise awareness so there was you know critical albion all of these shows have been based on that. And that's the crux of it, really. Any animal charities that get involved, of course, I mean, you know, I'll always bespoke make something for them. And that's always a real good thing and fun thing to do. And, you know, it's an amazing thing to see going to auction and, and raising a ton of money for, for that charity. I mean, you know, it's fantastic. 
You know, it's been fascinating talking to you, Dave, but with, with today, I'm going to finish it up soon, but I've got to ask you, uh, because this, we're recording this on, on Zoom, but behind you, you've got an awesome 80s arcade game. And, and you know, anyone watching this will be thinking, that looks amazing. Tell me about the arcade game. <laughs> okay, so I'm 50 now. Like, in 1982, graphics and video games, we used to go to arcades. So it was like, you know, I'm a massive gamer, by the way. Always have been... And if I'm not painting, I'm gaming, end of. But anyway, so to cut a long story short, in 82, 83, all graphics were like pixels. So it was like Defender and kind of all these games, Space Invaders, you know, all of this stuff. And then this machine arrived from America in this local arcade that literally blew everybody's minds. And it was called Dragon's Lair. And what it is, it run off a laser disc and it was a cartoon. So if you imagine you see little pixels and they look a bit crappy and then this thing arrives and it literally looks like the best cartoon you've ever seen. It blew your mind. It blew your mind. So anyway, it kind of got a bit of fame in Stranger Things. Um, and the scene in that, in that is amazing because it was notorious. Where games were 10p and you got three lives, this thing back in the day was 50p. And it was like so, so difficult to play. And it's like, if you actually finished it on one credit in the arcade, you became a legend. You were a legend immortal. And I've always wanted one. And like I say, um, I had a really special anniversary with my wife and she got me one, which was just blew my head off. That's amazing. So, what, what, what a gift. What a gift. I'm a lucky man in so many you, ways. You really are. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, so your, your gaming set is, is the arcade. Was the arcade, what was your sort of go-to arcade? But I, I, I am of a similar area. I would say Kate and Bay. So, okay. So Kate there was, like, if I went to Liverpool, you had to be 18, and that was Las Vegas. And we used to sneak in and do our best and get booted out all the time. But there was two arcades. There was two in Southport. There was one called Aladdin's Palace. And I can still see the rotor of what games they had. I used to go there and play Tron all the time. That was my go-to. And there was another game called P uh, another arcade called PJs and another one called the Golden Goose. And I used to get like a pound pocket money and that was 10 credits. And we used to go every Saturday we would be in there. We and I actually, my claim to fame, and it was almost like Unbelievable. I actually finished Dragon's Lair on one credit when I was 14. Wow. And I'm telling you, I mean, it was like people patting you on the back. It's like up until my marriage <laughs> and up until it was like the greatest day of my life. It was like, but anyway, so yeah. That is pretty impressive, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're, we're going to leave it there. Dave, thanks for talking to Art Related Noise. Really great to meet you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Hope to see everyone on the 30th. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.